This is the MG Car Club podcast with Wayne Scott and Adam Sloman. On this week's episode, behind the scenes at the British Motor Museum, Gaydon. The MG Car Club podcast. Hello and welcome to another MG Car Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you. Hope you're keeping well on episode 53. Very much looking forward to talking to the new managing director, well, newish, of the British Motor Museum at Gaydon. That's all coming up very soon. But first news, very sad news of the loss of one of our dear friends here at the MG Car Club, uh, Daniel Gregorius, who passed away at just the age of 48 this week. He was known well to us all in MG circles. He was a great supporter of the MG Car Club. He was a previous guest on this podcast, of course, around about a year ago, where he shared some real interesting insights into what MG have planned for the future. Before his job at MG, Daniel Gregorius worked at Renault, Chevrolet, Kia and even Peugeot. And outside of work, he was a keen sportsman and ran a few marathons as well. He joined MG at the start of 2018 and oversaw a 320% sales increase for the company during that period and played a critical role in establishing it as it now is as a key player in the electric vehicle market. But to us here at the MG Car Club, he was a friend, he was a true gentleman, and he was a great supporter of everything that we do and the MG brand that we're so passionate about. You can read a full tribute to Daniel Gregorius, of course, on the MG Car Club website at mgcc.co.uk on our news pages. Plus also, there'll be even more detail about Daniel and his life in the next issue of Safety Fast magazine. Part of that legacy, of course, is some great news out of MG because lockdown is ending, restrictions have been eased, and that means that car showrooms have reopened and MG have hit the ground running. They've seen sales increase by 50.8%, they say, so far in 2021. One of the few car manufacturers actually to see sales growth during the lockdowns of the pandemic, owing, of course, to those very affordable and very future-looking electric vehicles that they are selling so well. Of course, MG, absolutely delighted with their performance. You can read the full story on that again at the news pages of mgcc.co.uk where also we were tipped off about a new site of MGs in London. Yes, they're going to become very common on the streets of London very soon. And if you get off at the train station and you hail yourself a taxi cab, it could be a brand new MG5 that picks you up because... A company called WeFlex, who basically supply rent-to-buy cars to taxi drivers, have teamed up with those at Uber to inject a whole fleet of MG5 EVs into the over 1,600 Uber operators. That's 50,000 drivers across the city of London. So when you next visit the capital city of the UK, expect to see a lot more MGs on the street and ones that if you raise your hand, you might well be able to have a ride in. Of course, more information as ever on the news pages at mgcc.co.uk. Also, a quick mention of some of the great gifts and stuff we've got in the shop at the moment. Shop mgcc.co.uk if you want to go and have a look at what we've got uh, I picked out a particularly interesting one this week it's a great iconic MGB and it was the Sebring 12 hour car from 1964 
driven by Adams, Brennan and Morell, achieving at Sebring 4th in class and 22nd overall. And it went on to establish a long and successful career in the Sports Car Club of America's race championship during the mid-1960s. And Scalextric have announced a fantastic new model of it, wearing its proud number 48. You can find it on the MG Car Club shop. Just click the podcast products button at the foot of the page there. Or, of course, you can find the links in this week's MG Car Club e-newsletter. Now, though, let's go behind the scenes at the British Motor Museum at Gaydon. The MG Car Club Podcast. The MG Car Club, the mark of friendship. To take advantage of our many membership benefits, access to our centres and registers, and to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, join us now at mgcc.go. UK. Sharing your passion for MG on the MG Car Club podcast. Now on the MG Car Club podcast, we go behind the scenes at one of our favourite venues here in the UK for MG Car Club shows and meets, the British Motor Museum at Gaydon, which began life as an amalgamation in 1993 of the British Motor Industry Heritage Trust's preserved car collection, which back then was spread across two locations, Studley in Warwickshire and a museum in Sion Park in London. Today, situated in the small village of Gaydon, Warwickshire, just off Junction 12 of the M40, the British Motor Museum is home to the world's largest collection of historic British cars. It boasts nearly 300 cars in its collection, which span the classic vintage and veteran eras. Plus, it's one of our favourite venues for shows and meets within the MG Car Club here in the UK. So, to take us behind the scenes in the first part of our two-part conversation, I'm joined by Jeff Coop. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Wayne. Hi. How are you doing? Very good, thanks. It's a, a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. And we're talking to you, Jeff, because we've known you a long time. You've been at the museum a long time, but now you have a new and very important role. Tell us about your new job. Well, yeah, I guess it is. Uh, I'm the uh, the managing director of the British Motor Museum. Um, I took over um, last March, and um, if I remember correctly, and I do remember correctly, uh, it was about three days before Boris decided to uh, to lock the country down. So uh, it was um, uh, a bit of a trial to start with, and uh, first action was essentially to uh, to close the museum. Can you believe? And uh, and with it, the conference centre that, uh, of course, we uh, we operate to help fund all of the activities at Gaiden. Well, we did manage just between lockdowns last year to run the MG Car Club Social at the British Motor Museum at Gaiden. And we got to see firsthand just what you'd had to put in place in order to get visitors into the museum. I guess that must have been quite a meeting or the day you sat down and sort of mapped out what on earth you'd got to do. How did that all come together? Did it take a lot of work to get the museum sort of rearranged almost to take people during that period? Well, yes, you saw a lot of changes when you came up, Wayne, no doubt about it. And uh, it took a lot of working through. Uh, it's a big museum and a big building and or buildings, I should say, um, more than one. Um, but yes, we had to look at all the rules, the regulations, and um, we then had to invest quite a substantial amount of money in, in, in all the uh, equipment and um, screens 
and sanitising stations and uh, and you name it, we had to provide it and uh, to make sure everybody was safe. And uh, when we could reopen, um, I'm thank thankfully it all worked um, extremely well. We in fact we used some of the cars. We didn't want the um, the visit to the, the people's experience of the visit to be um, affected more than necessary. Um, but we obviously wanted everybody to be safe. Um, so uh, we came up with the idea of using some of the cars to, uh, if you like, sort of manufacture the one-way systems where you needed it at the pinch points. So uh, instead of having just barriers and um, things that aren't that very interesting to look at, we decided to use some of the cars and uh, got them up close to each other so you couldn't s squeeze between them. And they, they were used quite successfully for uh, for um, uh, directing traffic, as it were. And um, when you see some uh, some of those uh, barriers with uh, beautiful E-types and um, the old MG, uh, number one MG in there and, uh, and other things, it, uh, it made it an interesting uh, um, uh, piece of equipment to make sure everybody kept safe. So uh, it was good, good. You just, uh, you just have to use your imagination really and, uh, and, you, and, and I must admit the staff's ingenuity to come up with different ideas and uh, different ways of looking at it. I'm sure Cecil Kimber will be amazed to know that old number one was being used as a crowd barrier all the way in 2021 <laughs> during a global pandemic. But there it was, uh, pride of place in the foyer there as you entered the main museum. Yeah, it's always there. And uh, yeah, great thing, a great uh, piece of engineering to look at, I might yeah. say. Absolutely. Remind us then, Jeff, how all of that stuff has been paid for. How is the museum funded? How does it even survive and exist today? What's the story? Most, if not all, museums they they, they don't they don't make well. They're not here to make a profit. Of course, we're here to preserve all of this fantastic um, engineering expertise and design for future generations. Really, that's what we're all about. You can imagine how. How valuable all of this is going to be in, let's say, way beyond living memory, let's say 100 years, maybe 200 years. Um, it's going to be a huge window into our generations and our previous generations, um, a, a view of how we got, got around our transport, uh, how our transport needs were met, because they'll be very different in, uh, in those days in the future. So uh, it's such a valuable um, asset to have. Um, but museums... By nature, don't don't make a profit. As I said, we're not here. We're a not-for-profits organisation, but we do have to make money because um, we're not centrally funded like um, one or two of the big London museums are. Um, so uh, we we make money from various sources. Um, vast majority of the money um, comes from the conference centre that I mentioned earlier. That's um, that's a very uh, a large uh, business actually. We we could, we can take about fourteen hundred people a day in uh, conference in mode and uh, through twenty six rooms and uh, we've got some. Well, you've been there. You've been here, Wayne. We've got a six hundred seat room, all the way through two hundred and fifty seat rooms and and the like, right the way down to sort of small meeting rooms. So, so the the, the conference business. Um, and uh, associated businesses like product launches. We do a lot of product launches for, for um, original equipment manufacturers, car manufacturers. Uh, in fact, we see that growing um, quite well because there uh, is going to have to be an awful lot of electric vehicle product launches. And uh, we're ideal for that because we have 65 acres of grounds to, uh, to, to, to um, do the outdoor part of that job, if you will. And the great um, thing is those conference rooms, you can actually wheel cars into them, can't you, as a backdrop. That's a really yeah, nice yeah. feature. 
Yeah, we spent quite a bit of time just before lockdown, funny enough, um, renov- well, refreshing the whole conference centre uh, right away through from the restrooms, which are now all state-of-the-art, right away through to the uh, the decor and the IT. We've got one gigabyte Wi-Fi now, which is uh, super fast Wi-Fi. Um, and, uh, you know, we can project anything uh, and meetings around the world with virtually, if, if, if any, lag at all. Um, so we've we've invested quite heavily in in the technology of the element of the museum that makes money, and we'd done that before before the um, the pandemic struck, um, and uh, which is a bit of a shame because uh, they're all sitting there about pristine new rooms now. Uh, they just want some customers in them. So, uh, but um, getting back to your original question of how how we're funding it, we we, we would normally um, gain around about seventy percent of our income from. Our commercial operations. Um, we, we, we've got a, um, um, a, a, a commercial subsidiary, which is um, which is owned by the trust, which operates the commercial businesses, and um, and and that that say that provides about seventy percent of income. Um, other other income sources. Um, we've been trying to diversify our income sources, and uh, we've I'll run you through one or two things we've been coming up with since we've actually been shut down, but. But, but traditionally, we, um, we, we obviously operate um, a food um, service um, organisation because we have our own cafes. Of course, we, uh, we sell a lot of food to uh, both delegates, conference delegates and visitors to the museum. So um, food provision is, uh, is a really big business for, uh, for us. Um, we, we've got the Sky Suite up on the uh, rooftop there, which is a beautiful room. It sits around about 250 people. Uh, sit down and uh, we use that that's just been renovated into a, a stunning sky suite and uh, that 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 does conferencing but it's also a social room so um, hopefully a lot of the club meets will be up there but also it's a fabulous room for weddings and um, and that's another source of income for us and uh, indeed we've just got a wedding license uh, so that we can actually now um, um, hold the ceremonies as well as the uh, reception so wow. uh, so let's hope, uh, and I think people will still get married. <laughs> so that, that should be an ongoing uh, inc- uh, revenue source. And then, of course, we, we, we then come on to the sort of the, the income streams that are closer to the museum itself. And um, this provides getting off a sort of 30% of our income. So we've got the shop and we've also got, um, obviously, we, we have to charge for uh, entry um, try and keep that as low as possible, but we do uh, we do charge for entry because we're not um, government uh, centrally government funded anyway, um, and um, and we do shows and uh, as I say we do uh, product launches and and lots of other things in between. Um, we also um, we've also been coming up with things that we uh, we could do uh, which are which are fairly new um, or, or variations on a theme as it were. Um, since we've been shut down. And to give you an idea of one or two of the things that the team have been working on, and, um, and, and, and also this is our core activity, because we thought at the start of this pandemic that, um, you know, if we can't, because we're a visitor attraction, if we can't get people to come to the museum, then, you know, some places did, did take the decision, well, they have to close. Um, but we decided that that wasn't for us. And uh, we, we sort of thought laterally, really, and thought, well, if, we, if people can't come to the museum, why don't we take the museum to the people? Um, I think that was the sort of first strap line we adopted. And, um, and, and, in, and what I mean by that is that uh, we, we, um, we always did tours in the museum. You've probably been on one or two of the tours yourselves. And we have 
costumed explainers and uh, they bring it to life for families and children in particular. Um, and we do um, uh, you know, family tours, uh, technical tours, all sorts of different tours. Uh, but of course, people can't go on them if they can't come. So we thought with all the IT um, infrastructure we've got in the business, uh, particularly for the conference centre, we'd start adopting and using some of that for interactive live tours. So uh, we developed some products um, which we actually call, well, literally a live interactive tours. And uh, we thought that they might be useful. First of all, we thought that would help for keeping people in good spirits in places like care homes and uh, dementia clinics and uh, all sorts of sort of um, social settings, um, social care settings, I guess, uh, because we thought we wanted to do our bit to, uh, you know, keep keep people's morale up. And so we started doing tours for them and then we realised, well, actually, there's no limit to these virtual tours. There's no reason why we couldn't do an MG special virtual tour to um, wherever they are. We'll bring the museum to you. Well, you heard it here, folks. You can uh, tour Gaiden without travelling. Brilliant idea. And uh, I know we have a lot of listeners over in the States and uh, down in Australia as well, where, of course, the MG Car Club has a huge population of fans, all part of our global MG family. So you can come and enjoy what we enjoy, having the British Motor Museum on our doorstep through your screens instead. So, uh, yeah, good idea, I think. Uh, And, of course, there are a team of people that work at the museum as their careers of course there's Stephen Lang who is the head of collections and Catherine who's uh, the curator there but there's a, a huge volunteer army as well people who just love the museum and the cars in it we've got two types of people the volunteers are absolutely fantastic group of people uh, they as the name suggests they, they give their time freely and they do help us to uh, keep the um, buildings open, particularly the uh, the silver building, the, the, the recent addition building, uh, collection centre. Collection centre. I was going to say one. We're about to build a second one, hopefully. But uh, collection centre one is the one that exists now, and uh, that they they really help us to uh, to keep that open. They provide um, information to uh, visitors. They're obviously keen automotive enthusiasts, and they've got. Um, fantastic knowledge most probably quite a lot of them not all of them actually but quite a lot of them have probably worked in the automotive industry as well so they they, they offer a, a different dimension as well with all of the experience that they've got um but yes they certainly help us keep it all going there's about 70 or 70 i think nearly 80 uh, volunteers now and uh, they really help us to uh, to keep the place open and we've got an a, a equally brilliant group of um uh, paid um uh, a museum um, uh, visit, visitor attendants and they are um, uh, equally knowledgeable and, uh, and they're here as well day in day out and uh, you know we like to make sure we've got enough people on the grounds to offer uh, uh, you know interesting information to, to, to visitors as they uh, as they walk around and uh, and have a look at things and uh, yeah we, we, we definitely um, appreciate them immensely volunteers. Something that always comes across to me when I'm at the British Motor Museum is just how passionate everyone is there of the exhibits that you can wander around. And 
And the great thing is, is more than just a bunch of cars parked up to have a look. There's the story of how these cars contributed to society and how they shaped British culture, British life, and built the industries up, especially in the Midlands of England there. And it's it, that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's telling the story of, yes, the cars and what's interesting about them engineering-wise, but also their, their, their contribution to society and humans' story, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what, one of the one of the key things that uh, a museum is is supposed to do um, is, of course, we, we we collect the collection, and most people think of our, our museum as a car collection. But of course, we've also got um, a, a huge archive collection, the biggest archive collection in the world. So we have two collections in this organisation. Um, both equally important. Um, we've got you know a, a million. Um, glass plate negative images, uh, for instance, in the photographic archive, way back to the beginning of uh, the industry. Um, all the factory photographic collections are in the archive, and uh, so we've we've we, we've got all of that. But um, yes, absolutely. The other thing that a museum should always do it, um, in their specialist subject is to, to look at how, if 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 indeed they have, uh, they um, affected the social history of the. Um, of the areas or the country that um, you know, this this is all this industry has been going on in, and uh, you're absolutely right, Wayne, and um, right on cue. Actually, we uh, we um, I was going to tell you a little bit about some of the temporary exhibitions we've got, but one of them is called uh, Factor Scene, and it's going to open uh, for the summer holidays. So I think that will be sort of in July, middle of July, but we'll obviously have it on our website. And uh, it's been put together by our community historian. And it's basically, it's looking at life in and around the car factories, the big car factories of the Midlands in uh, terms of uh, Solihull, Longbridge and Canley. And uh, it's all about um, gathering, um, not only the people actually worked in the factories, but their families, how it affected their families, the, the towns and the um, communities that were around those factories, uh, because these the, the, these huge organisations had, as you say, huge effect on on those communities, and uh, even down to the uh, the pubs, the local pubs, the the cafes that service the um, the sort of lunchtime trade of people popping out of the uh, out of the factory to to pick up a sandwich and, and what have you. So so that's going to be a really fascinating um, temporary exhibition. Um, and we're really, in fact, we're just literally uh, preparing the temporary exhibition hall now for that one. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be a very interesting one. And um, just while, while we're on that subject of temporary exhibitions, we've got the um, opening on the 17th of May. We've got the um, E-Type Evolution exhibition, which is the 60th birthday celebration of E-Type. And then we've got one other exhibition that's going to come together a bit later in the summer, um, unfortunately, I can't tell you too much about that one yet, but it's if you're a British car enthusiast, you're going to love it. Uh, you just have to wait a little bit longer for the announcements on that one. <laughs> we'll wait and um, see with eagerness. <laughs> keep, keep your eye on our website because it's going to be interesting summer. The great partnership that you have with Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust next door comes through in the museum because you have all of that wonderful collection of cars um, to sort of wander around and look at and, and add into the collection and of course the top floor of that is full of weird and wonderful things from british motor uh, heritage and and 
the story of the development of so many cars is up on that top floor i kind of call it the freak show of uh, british leyland in many respects because there are all sorts of cars grafted onto bits of other cars to create prototypes isn't there and uh, you know you really do get to see a full cross-section of how so many of the iconic cars that we all celebrate came to be and often they were quite ugly journeys before they bloomed into the swans that we all love weren't they absolutely yeah the the, the collection center uh, first floor is is as you say it's uh, well it's got the whole land rover's history it's you know there's there's quite some cars up on that floor and of course it overlooks the um, balcony overlooks the um, museum's workshops and renovation workshops so there's quite a an atmosphere in that building when uh, particularly when the cars are fired up down in a workshop and uh, you hear the noises and uh, some of the uh, some of the smells coming up into the area, but uh, but uh, yeah, very atmospheric area. But yes, it's it's got some really interesting um, interesting stuff in there. Um, uh, a, a little sort of <laughs> slight diversion on that. I used to be uh, in a previous sort of well, not previous career. I've been in the automotive industry all my life. Actually, um, I was an apprentice uh, engineer actually way back when. And um, I used to um, manage the uh, engine development test beds for, uh, for, 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 for Gade, actually at Gaden, Gaden Technology, as it was then way back. And also uh, later on in a uh, career over at um, Solihull for Land Rover. And we, uh, we worked on some fantastic engines. I mean, uh, unbelievable engines that unfortunately never came to, uh, came to the marketplace for various reasons. But uh, I always remember the first, uh, virtually the first day I walked into my uh, previous role at the museum some years ago now, and uh, I saw one of the engines that I had to have worked on, the physical engine, because we only made, I believe, two of them, and they were prototypes. And uh, uh, it didn't work. You have to be prepared to make mistakes uh, in development, and uh, but you have to try, and it didn't work. But there, there it was, this engine that I knew I'd worked on just probably 10, 10, 12 years before, uh, sitting there in a little jewel case um, on display as part of history. And it does um, make you uh, wonder what your position in this world is when <laughs> what you were working on as cutting edge technology is there sat in a, uh, in a museum and, uh, and it's there for, uh, well, hopefully it's there forever because it's a little bit of my working life. But, uh, but no, we've got, we've got all sorts of very interesting stuff and particularly for for the uh, MG uh, enthusiasts, I mean, one of the sort of, uh, I, I also um, thankfully own a, a little MG TF uh, LE500, um, which I, I really like. And people say to me, well, why, why do you own that? And I want this car because it's got effectively my engine in the back because I was on the development team for uh, for the K-Series engine. And uh, before everybody shouts at me and tells me how unreliable the K-Series was, I can assure you when it was uh, under development, it was an unburstable beautiful little engine but um fortunately it got costed down a little bit too much probably um but uh, in its initial form it was super um so that's my uh my, that's my car that's why i drive that car because it's got a little engine in the back that uh, i had a little part in uh, hoping to, uh, to hopefully uh, developing but uh, no we've got uh, and just while we're on that subject we've got the uh, i call it the bread run i'm not sure that's a very uh, nice thing to call it but we've got the uh the MGF sort of mule that um, was effectively a metro van um, with, uh, it looked a little bit like, a, well, it was a metro van, uh, obviously cut and shut quite a lot. And it had the engine in the back. So effectively they took the subframe from the front with the engine, put it in the back and, uh, 
run around with it like a, a Metro ran in dis- it was in disguise because um, they didn't want to give away the mid-engine configuration during that part of development. So, um, so yeah, it's been saved. That, 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 that little mule was saved and it's part of MGF history and it's, uh, it's sitting there waiting for, uh, for people to uh, have a look at. And uh, there's all sorts of different things up there. There's, uh, the factories used to section cars, uh, as in uh, cut them up and uh, polish the, um, the sections of the cars into, uh, you know, basically works of art, really, if you're an engineer. And uh, we've got a beautifully sectioned uh, MGA, which the, uh, in fact, the volunteers did that one day. They renovated that uh, just a few years ago and did an absolutely superb job of that one. Uh, we've also got a, um, a 69 MGB GT, you will have seen this one weighing down in the main museum, which is a, a half section. It's basically an MGB GT sliced down the middle, opened up to about a metre, a metre and a half, so you can walk through the middle of it. In a beautiful and, uh, mauve pink colour as well. I always it, like the colour. It's a strange yeah. colour. I'm not sure that's a factory <laughs> colour. <laughs> but all of the, uh, all of the uh, obviously, the sharp edges were removed and actually beautifully engineered to... Uh, to be a safe exhibition ex- exhibit piece, but uh, that is one of the, uh, the real draws in the museum. Really, it's particularly for for children. You know, if you've got to try and explain how a car works to uh, to, to a young child and try and inspire them into uh, wanting to become something like an engineer or designer, then uh, there's no better exhibit than the MG half section because it, it really does show you a cross-section of everything from the axles to the bodywork to the gearboxes to the obviously the engines rack steering you name it it's sectioned and you can see inside it which is a fascinating thing to see but uh, yeah another, another interesting one we've got the mg uh, metro 6r4 um, which was the prototype rally car and that um, six being uh, six cylinders rb and rear engine and four wheel four wheel four wheel drive that was the prototype of the, uh, the the later Group B 6R4s, which, of course, were amazing vehicles. But the prototype we've got up there is um, it was uh, it was a typical British engineering job. It was done on probably uh, not a huge budget, and they took a, a Rover V8 and I believe cut the two cylinders off the back and uh, made a six-cylinder vehicle out of it, producing 250 horsepower. And then they uh, then they obviously produced a, a, a proper engine for it and um, and uh, four valve and it went up to four hundred and ten horsepower and was uh, was the six R four that uh, we all love to see in the museum again the six R four still the, the, the prototypes in there and the uh, and the six R four Group B and not many people realise of course that that engine developed by Williams the Formula One team just up yeah. the road well yes absolutely yeah yeah and. Uh, yeah, there's, there's been an awful lot of collaborations going yeah. on in yeah. the UK. But that's the fantastic thing about the UK and the automotive industry. That it's got so many different um, aspects to it. I mean, we were looking at, um, we, we were looking at um, putting a new, well, we are going to put a new uh, iconic sign, hopefully iconic, it'll become iconic, sign out uh, on, the, uh, on the drive down to the museum. Because we wanted to let people give them a heads up of what the sheer scale of the, uh, the exhibits they're about to see um, was all about. And we, we'd like to um, put all of the um, beautiful um, logos, we'd like to use the logos and of the vehicles we display. And so we started counting up the vehicles, the different brands that we've got on display. And we've got 41 brands, UK brands on display in, in just in the, in the museum. 
and we're we're, we're hopefully going to be a, um, um, attracting some more in. So, and I believe there was something like ninety-two brands when we looked into it. In in fact, in the archive, we've got information on something like ninety odd brands of um, British cars. Can you believe that? I just blew my mind. Forty forty-one brands of vehicle are on display in this museum, and um, hence, hence the name British Motor Museum. And um, and that's one of the things we're trying to do now. We're trying to sort of capitalise on that because we think there's a unique opportunity for Britain in this place that uh, that um, we want to become the sort of global focal point for British automotive history. And that's a unique opportunity, really, because in other countries that had large um, uh, large automotive industries, their original manufacturers tended to go down the route or have tended to end up with with museums, um, state Germany, for instance, they've got uh, wonderful museums for Porsche in Stuttgart and and Mercedes in Stuttgart, and obviously BMW, Audi, uh, Volkswagen, Altstadt. They've they've got wonderful museums that are all single brand museums. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that the Volkswagen one has got all the Volkswagen brands in it, but it's essentially a Volkswagen museum. But the Porsche Museum, beautiful museum. I rode my motorbike over there a couple of years ago to have a look at them, and um, they're they're stunning but they're they are brand centers really uh the uk thankfully for us the the the, the equipment manuf- well the original equipment manufacturers the manufacturers of the vehicles in the uk tended well haven't gone down that route so their car collections such as they are um are are, are not in in brand centers um, so we've got quite a lot of the factory collections uh, or elements of the factory collections, which wouldn't be possible in somewhere like Germany, because I don't think Porsche are going to lend their vehicles to Mercedes, and whether Mercedes would want them in their museum anyway is another thing. But um, it's a unique opportunity for us to build a really a sort of global focal point of our our own industries, um, automotive hist- our own automotive history in the UK, and uh, and that's what we that's another thing that we're going to set out and try and do over the next. Uh, well, coming the coming months and years, um, we always represent, as I say, a huge part of the motor industry in Britain, and I'd like us to represent a, a lot, a lot more of it, or uh, um, the bits that we don't represent now. Well, on next week's episode of the MG Car Club podcast, part two of that conversation, where we'll be continuing with a more detailed look at exactly what MGs you can see in the British Motor Museum at Gaydon, and what the future holds for one of our favourite events venues. Subscribe to receive new episodes of the MG Car Club podcast at mgpodcast.uk.